Let's read together James chapter 4. Let's get into it, verses 1 through 12. And then I'm going to say a short little prayer, and then we'll get busy. All right? So, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, let's pray. Just a real quick prayer here. Father, we ask that, um, much like what Scott said, that you'd give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, that you'd comfort our hearts as we uh, look to your word. And God, we ask that you would do a work that only you can do, that I can't do, that none of us here can do, that you'd give us eyes of faith. The Holy Spirit, would you attend your precious word? Would you speak to us now and comfort us and counsel us and guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so as you can tell, this message is about conflict. Yay! Uh, so some of you right now, if you're an avoider of conflict, you're already trying to go, okay, how do I get out of this place? Uh, but some of you like conflict, and you're weird, okay? Uh, I don't like conflict. I'm an avoider of conflict, but that's what we're talking about today. Because in James chapter 4, starting with verse 1, once again, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You know, so we know, we know that everyone experiences conflict, Right? Uh, show of hands, if you're brave this morning, have you experienced conflict recently? Oh, yeah, very good. Me too. Uh, I have too. So we will experience conflict. There's no doubt about that. That is our reality, right? Uh, conflict is a problem. We will have conflict until we see Jesus, until we get to heaven. The Bible says that basically when you were absent from the body, you were present with the Lord. And when we're present with the Lord, there will be no more conflict. Hallelujah, right? Uh, but until we get to heaven, it's not a matter of if, but it's, it's when, it's how often you and I will experience conflict. You see, the Bible's very, very clear. Uh, conflict will not decrease, 
actually it will increase, right? So as the love of uh, hearts grows cold towards God and towards one another, conflict is only going to increase. We have conflict over right now in uh, the Ukraine, right? So Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, do not be surprised. Do not be alarmed. Do not be shocked. You will experience conflict on a global scale, but also on an individual scale. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said this, that uh, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Well, I would add conflict uh, to that. Uh, he also said that beer is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. So let's pray. We're done. Um, but just as conflict is sure to happen outside of the church, it's surely to happen inside the church too. When two or three people are gathered together in Jesus' name, many times that is a, that's a good day, right? But on a bad day, when we want what we want, no matter what, from someone else, conflict can escalate very, very quickly. You see, conflict is all over the Bible. We see it throughout the entire New Testament from the time Jesus' other disciples were ticked off at James and John in Mark chapter 10 for requesting to sit at Jesus' right hand or left hand. We see it all throughout the New Testament of Paul writing letters to the churches. There's conflict everywhere in that. So in other words, when two or three Christian sinners, Christian sinners, get it? Christian sinners are gathered together, sparks are going to fly at times. Not, not in our household, right? But no, I'm kidding. I actually, I'm going to use us as an example a little bit today. And uh, I asked her permission this morning <laughs> to, yeah. So uh, she said, you do not have my permission. And I said, well, we'll see how it goes. So we may have conflict after the sermon today. So yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, You see, conflict is a problem. It's a reality. It's going to happen. But the real problem is that we as Christians don't have a freaking clue how to deal with conflict when it arises. We're much like people on the outside going, how did we get here? What do we do with this? What do we do with all of this conflict? That's the problem. Like the world around us, like an oscillating fan that goes back and forth, we vacillate between avoiding conflict, which is one extreme, and attacking, and every place in between, especially when we're in the midst of conflict, right? We either want to get out of dodge or we want to attack. So we go back and forth, back and forth. Now, before we go any further, not all conflict is sinful, not all conflict is sinful. Sometimes it's for the right reasons, and many times God uses it for redemptive purposes, for change. Sometimes when we're having a very difficult time with our spouse or with a coworker or whatever, many times that is God using that conflict, that relationship to bring about very good and redemptive purposes. But today we're not talking about good conflict. We're talking about sinful conflict. Sinful conflict that causes disunity in a church, and how God can help us to deal with it in a way that magnifies him. Remember, for the city church, we exist to magnify Christ. 
And one of the great ways that we can do that is to know how to deal with conflict in a way that magnifies him. The reason that this is so very important for us as a, early, as a young church, as a baby church, is because it will be extremely difficult to fulfill our mission and our mandate as a church if our relationships are fractured by unresolved sinful conflict. You know, when Scott asked me to preach, one of the things I thought about, what, what's one sermon, what's one passage that I would want to leave with our church if, if the Lord were to take me the next day? And it would be this one. God greatly emphasizes unity in his church. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So church, we've got to figure out, we've got to know how to deal with conflict when it arises, especially right now, praise the Lord, we're not dealing with conflict as far as I know, but this is the time to think about how do we deal with conflict because there will be a day as a young church, as we mature, there will be conflict at some point. You know, that's the bad news, but the good news is that God has not left us alone to figure these things out by ourselves. The beauty of the passage today in this letter by James is that James gets right to the heart of why and how conflict happens, even among Christians. And not just that, he basically, he doesn't just diagnose what's going on, he prescribes like a good doctor or like a fine surgeon, he prescribes, how do we, what do we do with this conflict? How do we resolve the conflict? So, he's addressing Christians in this passage. If you look at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 with me, real quickly, if you have your Bibles, look with me, James chapter 1. We're talking about conflict within church. We're talking about conflict among Christians. And how do we know that James chapter 4 is actually addressing Christians or the church? Well, look with me once again. James chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So let's just stick right there. First of all, it's James who's writing the book of James, Right? Um, uh, it does say servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James obviously is a Christian. He is a believer. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And the 12 tribes are Jewish people. Jewish people who have been dispersed throughout that region. That's what it means by dispersion. So he's a, he's, James is writing as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer to the 12 tribes of Jews who are spread out through what is called the dispersion. They're dispersed. But they're not just Jewish. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. So James, born-again guy, right? We could talk a lot about who he is, but not today. He's speaking to Jews, but not just Jews, he's speaking to Jewish Christians throughout the dispersion. So maybe it's not just one church, we're looking at probably many churches, many Christians, but specifically Jewish Christians. So when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, what causes fights, what causes quarrels among you, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christians. Yes, Jewish Christians, but Christians 
This is how we know. This is important because, once again, conflict arises even among Christians, and especially during suffering. If you look at, once again, verse 2, he says, Count it joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You know what? There's something about suffering, whenever we encounter suffering, that amplifies conflict. And so he knows this. They have been dispersed. They're experiencing suffering and persecution. And he knows that because they, they, maybe they have experienced conflict or maybe they're about to experience conflict, he's addressing it. I think probably they're having conflict. And so he's saying, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? So James is writing a letter that will be passed around to all of these Christian churches who are experiencing trials of various kinds. Knowing there is or will be sinful conflict among them, and what James wants to do for them and for us is he wants to diagnose the root cause of the disease and prescribe a cure for it because God's glory, our relationship to him and others, and our joy is at stake. It's that important. You know, many times during times of suffering, whatever, is, whatever the root is, okay, amplifies the fruit. So for many of us, once again, if we're experiencing suffering, we're experiencing um, difficulties or trials, whatever's going on right here, okay, the root expresses itself in bearing fruit on the outside. But also during good times, right? There's also good root that's there that bears what? good fruit. So what James is trying to do is he's trying to get really down into our hearts. He's trying to mess with our business a little bit. And he's saying, okay, whatever's going on in here, okay, is expressing itself out here in conflict. So let's start with, if you have your map this morning, let's look at point number one. Let's begin with a diagnosis of the root cause of conflict because that's where James begins. Verses 1 through 3, once again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So you've got a question, great question, and then you have an answer. And he says that conflict begins in the heart. So that's point number one. Conflict begins in the heart. You know, many times we, we think it's the difficult people around us or our, our situation that's causing the conflict. But he's very clear. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? It's not the difficult people, although they can be difficult. Even though your situation can be really difficult, it can influence conflict, most definitely. But James is going to the heart. He's saying, no, where it really starts, where it really originates, is within the heart. It begins there. And so if conflict begins in the heart, then guess what we need to do? We need to address the heart. We need to ask questions of the heart. We need to think about what's going on inside of us. But guess what? Understanding the heart is very complicated. It's very difficult. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? Well, God can. But I know when I'm in the midst of conflict, it's very, very difficult for me to understand how did we get to this place? What's going on in here that caused me to to talk to my wife the way that I did? So it's very complicated. 
What does the Bible say about the heart? And how do we understand and help others deal with their, quote, heart problems? Because it is a heart problem. Conflict is a heart problem because it it begins at the root. It begins in the heart. And James starts the diagnosis, his diagnosis, of why and how we have conflict with a cause and effect, what I would call diagnostic question in verse 1. Once again, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That's a great question. I know that when I'm in the middle of conflict with my wife or whoever else, once again, uh, we get to a place where maybe it escalated very quickly, and we kind of even joke about that, and we say, well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? When I, I know when I was younger, when we were younger, I almost had this rap song come to my head, but I'm going to put that aside. When we were younger, um, especially when the kids were all in the house, uh, we were raising Abby. Abby is our, our 16-year-old. But back when she was little, uh, Hope did not work. She, she stayed in the home and took care of Abby, and I worked like two or three jobs uh, when we were younger. I remember after two or three jobs of working that day, uh, all I wanted to do was come home and relax. I just wanted to come home, and, and this is kind of, the, you know, maybe I'm using, I'm exaggerating a bit, but I, I thought to myself, when I come home today after slaving away at my job, I'm going to come home, and, and they're going to greet me at the door, and Father, you know, <laughs> we're so glad that you're home, and, and uh, here are your slippers, and there's your recliner, and, and she's got food on the table, and, and here we go, and there's peace in the household, right? And I just want to relax, okay? So... I'm driving home, it was about a 30-minute drive, I would drive home and I would just think about, oh, I cannot wait to get in my recliner and relax, okay? And so what was going, that was what was going on my end. What was going on her end was, I can't wait for Kevin to come home and fix all this, okay? Because it's, it's been a hairy mess today and I can't wait for, 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 for me to relax so that Kevin can take care of the kids and, and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, that's what was going on in that situation. And I remember, obviously, the reality of it coming home and, and bikes are in the driveway and, you know, Abby's running out in her diaper in the yard, you know, uh, um, you know and, and Hope's about to pull her hair out. And, and uh, so what happens is I want to go inside and I want to relax with no communication. What does she want? She wants to communicate her day to me. So guess what happens? Conflict. And then it escalates quickly. And we began to go, wow, that went to zero to 60 in like under four seconds. And so when we're in the midst of that conflict, we're not asking the question, you know what, Hope, what's causing the fight and quarrel among us? Okay? We're, we're, it's, it's afterwards that we go, wow, how did that happen? What was going on? Why did we, for two people who love each other, why are we now at odds, not just at odds, but escalating quickly and saying things we shouldn't say to one another? So James is asking a question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a good question. It's a diagnostic question. Do you ever pause at some point and go, why did we have that argument? Why did we have that fight? Do you ever look back or do you, or do you just dismiss it and just move on? You know, one extreme of asking a diagnostic question we've said before is where you just kind of, you know, look inward all the time and that's not good either. 
It's kind of, my professor used to call it the paralysis of analysis, where you're analyzing everything to the nth degree, and that, that's, not very, that's not a very good thing. But on the other side, rarely do we ask the question, why did we fight? Why did we quarrel? What was going on in that situation so that we can learn from it, so that we can grow from it, so that we can magnify Jesus the next time? And so James is asking the question, He's causing us to ask a very, we'll say rhetorical, yet diagnostic question, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? It's, it's really a great question. We need to be asking questions of ourselves, personally, in our relationships. I call it a, having a conversation about the conversation. So we just had a fight, so now let's have a conversation about why we had that fight. What caused that fight? What caused that quarrel among us? See, James is for our joy. He is for magnifying Jesus in the church. He is for unity. And the opposite of that is what the Bible calls biting and devouring one another. So this is real serious stuff. What James is trying to do with asking this question is to help us to pause, ask the right diagnostic question of what is causing the conflict. Why? Because I think James, and he is, he's setting us up for the answer. Because often when we ask that question, we are blame shifting. We're saying, well, it's the person, it's the situation, and I'm suffering, I'm, I don't feel well, it's my finances, it's, it's this, it's this, it's this, and this. And James is saying, hmm, maybe not. How would you intuitively answer that question yourself? When you're in the midst of conflict with your spouse or with a coworker or with a friend or, or whomever, okay, how would you answer that question? Why are we having this fight? Why are we having this quarrel? What would you say? Well, the right heart question, quote, heart question, is the starting point of resolving any conflict. You start with the heart. But that's not enough. We need an answer to what that looks like, to what that is. So in verse 1b, basically, and also, I say 1b. Does everyone know what 1b is? It's like the second part of verse 1. So 1a, when we say 1a, we're talking about the first part of verse 1. 1b is the second part of verse 1, okay? So 1a says the question, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? 1b, though, is here's the answer. He says, is it not this? He's saying, here's the answer, that your passions are at war within you. Literally, what this means is, if you were to take just the, the original language of what this means, it means pleasures at war in your members. So when he says, your passions are at war within you, he's literally saying, your pleasures. Your pleasures are at war within your members. What he's basically saying is that there are competing pleasures going on, both you and the other person competing once, uh, against, once, uh, against one another, and you're having issues. You have competing pleasures, and where are they coming from? Where are they originating from? Your members, the heart, is basically what he's saying. So with James, there is no blame game here. There is no blame shifting and saying, well, it's the other person, it's my situation, it's, it's this or that. He's basically getting right to the heart and saying, it is pleasures, competing pleasures that are at war in your members. 
in your heart. James says the problem is not your situation, it's not the other person, it's you and your passions. I call that word passion for me uh, a sinful desire on steroids. A sinful desire on steroids. That's what we mean by passion. That's what the Bible means by passion or pleasure. A sinful desire on steroids. But often what we do is we blame shift rather than diagnosing what's going on in our hearts. Much like our first parents, Adam and Eve. What did Eve say when God came to Eve and she, they had sinned? Eve said, it's the serpent. Okay? And then goes to Adam and Adam... <laughs> Uh, he's always outdoing Eve here. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. From the very beginning, whenever there is conflict between each other or most importantly uh, with God, we are blame shifting. We're saying, it is the woman <laughs> that you gave me. It is the serpent. It is whatever else because we do not want to shine light on the fact that the problem where it originates and starts is ourselves and our hearts. Once again, you see the word passions is a very unique word. It literally, once again, means pleasures. A sinful desire on steroids. I say sinful desire because many desires are good. For example, going back to my example with me and Hope, Wanting to come home after working two to three jobs and wanting to relax, that's not a bad desire. It's a good desire. Her desire of wanting her husband to come home and her wanting to download everything that happened that day and care for the things of the house, that's not a bad desire. But when I want what I want so much and she wants what she wants so much to where we're willing to sacrifice or fracture our relationships, then it becomes sinful desire. It's very subtle. Because then you can also self-justify and say, well, you know, my desire is just to come home. I've worked two or three jobs today and I just want to relax. Okay? Rather than saying, hey, honey, can I relax today? Because I, you know... It's, it's, no, I want to relax. I need to relax. I expect to relax. And you're going to fulfill that for me. And what is she saying? Well, I expect, I desire, I demand that you come home and, and not go away for five or 10 or 15 minutes and relax, but I need you to solve stuff right now. So that's where it becomes a passion, a sinful desire. Even good desires can become sinful. You know, the Bible is pro-desire, by the way, because God is pro-desire. God is not anti-desire. As a matter of fact, as Scott said a few weeks ago, quoting C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this, Lewis says that God finds our desires actually too weak. The problem is not desire. The problem is what we do with that desire. So once again, even a good desire can turn into a sinful desire in a New York minute. I've heard it said this way. Once again, when a good desire becomes an ultimate desire, it becomes a sinful desire. This is the subtlety of unchecked sinful pleasures that are warring inside of it. It's like 
two kingdoms were on our thrones and our two kingdoms are colliding. We're, we're basically declaring war. We'll get to that in a minute. We're declaring war against one another. That's what's going on in our hearts according to James. You know, it's interesting that James calls it a war. Once again, literally, James is saying that conflict is caused by your pleasures at war in your members, in your heart. With pleasures, once again, meaning your sinful desires and members meaning your heart. He's saying that basically conflict arises when out of your heart, competitive pleasures declare war on the other person and vice versa. Two hearts that love one another. Oh, there's another song, a little 80s song came in my head. Two hearts, no. Two hearts that love one another, that love God, love Jesus. We did back then. Love Jesus, love one another dearly. But two kingdoms are colliding at that point when I'm coming home. Two, who, two hearts that love God and love one another are now warring against one another. You get what I'm laying down? You see, the Bible says that conflict is only a byproduct of what is actually going on in the heart. Your heart problem is the root that produces the fruit of conflict, to say it a different way. And James says it's a war. There is a war that's happening. And like a fine surgeon, James describes that what this war is essentially about, or what's actually going on in your heart that produces conflict. Look at verse 2. Boy, that was just verse 1. Wow, okay. Verse 2, what's really going on? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So what's going on is very simple. He says, you, you want, you need, you expect something from a situation or another person and you're, you're, you're going to get it until, you know, you're going to declare war. The problem is you're not getting it. And you're frustrated. You're disappointed. So you murder. We're talking about escalating quickly. You, you may be saying to yourself, okay, James, aren't you being just a little bit melodramatic? I haven't murdered anyone. Okay? But remember what Jesus said. If you hate someone in your heart, you're basically killing them. You're murdering them. And as we think about the current event of the Ukraine right now um, and just global conflict, James diagnoses what's going on in Putin's heart. Putin wants something, and he's going to declare war to get it. But before you start judging Putin too hard or harshly, James basically puts us on the same level, moves from the greater to the lesser by saying you're on the same team as a murderer. Because he says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And so before you judge you know, Putin or anyone else too, too harshly, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's basically saying it's the same root cause. You're on the same team. You're, you're playing the same game. By fighting you have slid down what I've heard people call the slippery slope, you know, slippery slope of conflict. 
Moving from desire to demand to expectation, we're moving down the slippery slope, to disappointment to judgment and ultimately to punish. This is what we do all the time. And once again, it's zero to 60. Sometimes we go from desire to punish in a New York minute. This is the slippery slope of conflict. I desire something from you. Could be a good desire, could be a bad desire. But at some point, I'm gonna demand that from you. And now I expect it from you. But when you don't give it to me, I'm gonna be disappointed. So now I have a choice to make. What do I do with that disappointment? Well, when the slippery slope of conflict says, if you don't go to God and go to the Lord of that disappointment, then you begin to judge. Why didn't she give that to me? Doesn't she know know that I worked two to three jobs today? (laughs) That 30-minute drive from Butler to wherever we lived out in the country, that's what was going on in my heart. I was exhausted, and I desired all of that, all that I wanted. But then once I drove up and began to have a conversation with Hope, I began to demand it and expect it. And then when she didn't give it to me, and by the way, she's doing the same thing. Remember, two kingdoms, two hearts colliding. We're both very disappointed in one another at this point. So we have a choice. We can ask the right questions. We can go to the Lord or we can just start judging one another. Don't you, don't you care? Don't you love me? Don't you understand what I do for you or what I do for this family? We begin to judge. And then when that doesn't work, which it normally never works, right? Then we begin to punish. And how do we punish? Well, we, there's a couple different ways we punish. Um, Let's just use the extremes. One punishment is is passive-aggressive behavior, right? That's what psychology calls it, passive-aggressive. That's where you you basically say, well, I'm just not, I'm going to withhold affection from you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm I'm not going to cook supper. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. For a coworker, it it could mean, well, you know what? I'm just not going to clean the bathroom. I'm going to withhold. But it's not outright aggression. It's, you know what I'm saying? The silent treatment. What are you doing? You're punishing. You're murdering someone in your heart, according to James. You're fighting, you're quarreling, you're at war. Well, the other extreme, once again, is just outright attacking. But both are attacking in a way. Both are punishing. Whether it's outright attacking or, once again, passive-aggressive behavior. James says in verses two through three that a better way is to ask and communicate rather than to demand. But here's what happens. I'll give you an example. I can go to Hope and I can say I have a good desire of coming home because I've worked a hard day and I'm tired and I can, I can ask her and say, you know what, honey? This is how my day has gone. And I, I ask and I communicate. Could I just have five minutes just to unwind And then guess what? I'll come back and I'll take care of the kids. I will do whatever you need me to do. But can I have five minutes? Now, she could, at at that point, she could say yes or no. If she says no, then I say, okay. Or I could say, you know what? Now I demand it. What turned out as a simple request 
depending on what's going on in my heart, can become a demand, an expectation, open hand, closed hand. James is saying it'll go much better if you ask with an open hand. And better yet, rather than just asking the person, if hope says no, because guess what? She could be warring in in a crazy way towards me. So rather than asking her, I could be asking God, God, would you help me? Because right now, all I want to do is rest and relax, and my wife needs me. So God, would you give me the strength? Would you give me grace? Would you give me the humility and patience to serve my family today? Would you provide whatever my wife cannot provide for me? Asking, communicating. You may say to yourself, because James anticipates this, you may say, but I do ask. I ask, I I try to communicate, but James says this, but even when we ask many times and we communicate in maybe healthy ways, we shouldn't, quote healthy ways, we shouldn't expect to get anything since our sole motive of asking is to get what we want anyway. This is where James is leading us. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet, you want, you expect, you demand, but you don't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, sinful desires on steroids, your pleasures. James is drilling down into our hearts in a big way. But I guess what? It's even worse than that. James tells us that our conflict, our war is ultimately with God. It's not with the other person. Look at verse four. You adulterous people, with an exclamation point. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word enmity means hostility. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James is doing is, once again, he's drilling down into our hearts to the inner motives that are, that are really going on, what's really going on under the hood of this car. He's telling us that this heart problem is actually a love problem, a delight problem, a treasure problem. Ultimately, folks, it is a worship problem. He calls it a friendship problem in our passage, but what he really means is, and this is what the Bible, the Bible basically uses one word to encapsulate all of those, the the love problem, delight problem, treasure problem, worship problem, into one word, and that word is idolatry. That is when you have chosen to love Delight, treasure, worship, get life from, or be a friend to anything other than the one who deserves that kind of devotion. James says God is jealous for you in verse 5. Like a husband who delights in and is devoted solely to his wife and who is jealous for her to love him alone in return. That's what it means. That God is jealous for you. 
He wants to be the only one that you love, treasure, delight in, get life from. And James is saying when you're entering into conflict, you're worshiping something else. Once again, James says God is jealous for you in verse 5. And often the Bible calls idolatry, verse 4, an act of adultery for this very reason. You see, James is using Old Testament language that the Jewish Christians he's writing to, they, they know all too well. It was the Old Testament prophets that called the people of Israel adulterers because of their idolatry. James uses this language not to shock us, even though it does, but clearly to diagnose our problem as it relates to conflict. You see, sometimes idols, you know, we have the word idolatry, sometimes idols are like aircraft carriers, okay, above the water. You can see them very clearly. They're huge, okay, huge. And you go, oh, that's an idol. I love that way too much. I want that way too much. I expect that from my wife way too much. But then sometimes they're not aircraft carriers. They are like submarines, very subtle, a good desire, once again, that has become maybe a sinful desire in a New York minute. And it, it's hidden deep down. So idolatry. Sometimes idols can be aircraft carriers. Sometimes they can be submarines. That's why it's important to ask the right diagnostic question and to have a conversation about the conversation and say, what just happened? What's going on in your heart, in my heart? Let's talk about it. What did you want from me? What did I want from you that turned from desire to demand to now we're punishing one another through conflict? Simply put, we, when you want something from another person so much that you're willing to fight to get it, then you're committing an act of idolatry. When you're willing to sin against and punish an image bearer of God, you're saying, I love that thing more than I love God. And what does that make you? An adulterer. James is using some very serious language regarding conflict. For James, it's black and white. You're either a friend of God's or a friend of the world, according to James. When you're, when you're in conflict and, and you're engaging in sinful, unresolved conflict, He's saying you're an adulterer, you're committing adultery, you're, you're an idolater. You're a lot like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. What did Gollum have? What did he call it? His little, his little precious. You know, Tolkien, that's what he means. He, Gollum basically took what was a really good thing, a beautiful ring, but it became his precious. And if you remember the story, he was just an average, normal-looking a uh, hobbit, I guess. Hobbit? Was he a hobbit? Okay. <laughs> Normal, average-looking, middle-earth person. And what did he become? This grotesque, small, excommunicated, if you will, person who lived in caves and just loved his precious. That's what James is describing because here's the deal. The slippery slope into conflict is actually the slippery slope into 
idolatry and adultery. This is what James is saying, going back to verse 1. What causes conflict? It's not your finances, it's not the other person, not your co-worker, not your spouse. What causes conflict is idolatry. Worshiping the creation over the creator. That is a biblical definition of idolatry. When you worship the creation over the creator to such a point, you're willing to sacrifice your relationships to have it, you're an idolater. You've made a God out of that, quote, thing that you love. And every God requires a sacrifice. Little G God. You've chosen to bend your knee. You've chosen to sacrifice your relationship at the altar of this God. You know, if you, if you love Jesus, if you love God this morning, that should be a game changer when it comes to conflict. That should cause you to pause before you enter in. Uh, I, I don't know why I have this image in my head, but you remember the old fire commercial, Stop, Drop, and Roll? Remember that Stop, Drop, and Roll? Okay. So I see fire. I better stop, I better drop, and I better roll. Meaning, I should pause for a moment, and before I start attacking and punishing my wife, I should take a step back, and like Jesus says, look at the log. That's another word. I should look at the idol that's in my eye, rather than looking at the little idol in her eye. And I should just stop, and I should be, maybe we just need to go away and pray. Because we're way too hot and bothered right now. In the bad way. <laughs> I saw Eli look at me and I went, in the bad way. So church, as you, or before you enter into, or get in the middle of, or, or any of that in conflict, this should cause you to pause. I don't want to be an adulterer. I don't want to be an idolater. I don't want to be Gollum. <laughs> because, God, I love you. You see, the war is not really between us. It's vertical first. That's really where the war is. So this is pretty bad news, right? I mean, James is calling us out. He's saying, he's saying all of this about us. It's really bad news. But if you look at verse 6, There's always a but God in the Bible. James has taken us from, he has undressed our hearts, got into the inner motives and drilled down deeply and says, this is what you're doing, this is who you are. And then in verse 6, he says this, but God gives more grace. God gives more grace. More grace than what, you may be asking? More grace than your sin? This is great news for us. More grace than your failures? 
More grace than your idolatry, more grace than your adultery, more and more and more grace does he provide. When you act like an adulterer, he is your faithful husband who will not discard you. When you are all the things that your heart and the enemy say about you, even if you feel like you deserve it, and you may, you may deserve it, he gives more grace and he delights over you. Like we heard last week, he says, come home. Come inside. Church, this is, this is audacious, extravagant grace that never ends and there's always more of it. The Bible says even when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. So church, son and daughter of the king, of your heavenly father, go home and receive more grace than you ever dreamed of. Yes, you're everything that James said you are, but you're so much more than that. God gives more grace. And who are you? Well, let's look to the cross. Who are you? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done on your behalf, by living the perfect life that you couldn't live, he gives you his righteousness by faith. Not only did he do that, but he also went to the cross for you. You idolater, me idolater, the, the adulterer, the enemy of God who is hostile towards God, he died for you. So once again, it's not who you are or what you've done, it's who he is and what he's done for you on the cross. He gave you his perfect life, he died a substitutionary death for you, and he was raised again to give you life, to call you home and say, son, daughter, come home. And then if you look at 6B, 6B, once again, 6A, 6B, 6A, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, he gives even more grace as you humble yourself and make war on your sinful pride and the enemy not the other person. Church, listen. Rather than sacrificing your relationship, my relationship with my wife, rather than sacrificing that relationship at the altar of the thing that I think I want or the thing that I need, I need to humble myself before the God who sacrificed his son on my behalf. Why, why would we do anything differently? Why would I sacrifice this beautiful marriage, this beautiful relationship at the altar of the thing that I want and need and expect? It's like Gollum. It's horrific. It's, why would I do that when my heavenly father sacrificed his son for me? That's a no-brainer. I received that. But he gives more grace as we humble ourselves before him. This takes grace-driven fighting. <laughs> grace-driven fighting. It starts with grace, but it also takes effort. It takes effort for me to stop, drop, and roll when I'm about to have a fight with my wife. And then to go to God. And James says, this is what it looks like in going to God. You, and I'm going to, for the lack, sake of time, we're going to just use the imperatives that are here. Imperative, that's a command, if you've ever had English. 
Look at what the imperatives are. Starting with verse 7 and, and following. He says, submit. He says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So submit to God, resist the devil. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse, purify, grieve, humble yourself before the God who gives more grace. This is a whole Old Testament picture of what it looks like to have godly sorrow. To say, you know what? When I had a fight with my wife, God, it was you that I sinned against, not her. Yes, I sinned against her, but first and foremost, it was you. And, and if I love God, that should cause me to have sorrow. That should cause me to humble myself before God and say, purify me. I confess my sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Church, we need to bend the knee and receive grace in our time of need. Godly sorrow, repentance, faith, and worship is the way out of the slippery slope and back into joy and freedom in your relationships. So what James is doing is he's giving us a prescription for what it looks like to get out of the hole that we've created, if that makes sense. And the last thing he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So rather than me exalting myself and hope exalting herself in front of me, guess what I'm doing? I'm humbling myself before God. I'm trusting him to provide what only he can provide. James is saying, lastly, look to the Lord and trust him to ultimately and completely provide for your needs. So when you go down the slippery slope of conflict and you get to the point of disappointment and you think, okay, I'm now gonna judge and I'm gonna punish my wife because she didn't give me what I wanted. We have a, we have a choice in that moment. And so disappointment's not a bad thing. Disappointment's not sinful. But in that moment, I can either judge and punish or I can go to God with my disappointment. God, I, I, you, know, you know what I wanted, you know what I needed. I, I, I believe it's a good desire, but I'm not getting it. But I definitely don't want to sin against my wife and I most importantly don't want to sin against you. So God, would you help me? Would you help me with my disappointment? Would you help me not to judge and to punish my wife? Would you provide for my needs? Rather than seeking to exalt self and spend your life on, your all, on all your own passions, look to the Lord to exalt you and to provide for all of your needs. Because ultimately, he's the only one who can do it. This is the cure. Grace first. Responding to that grace with repentance, turning from your sin, and then trusting God with the rest. You see, the gospel is the ultimate cure for conflict. You were at war with God. And on a bad day, sometimes you still are. <laughs> but you were at war with God, but guess what? Rather than God punishing you, he sent his son for you and for me. He became our peace. He became our reconciliation. He reconciled us to God, the Father. And as 
you get, as you embrace that great truth, and as you put your faith and trust in it, and as you begin to live that out, so that's the vertical, you then begin to maybe love differently, approach conflict differently. Rather than judging and punishing you, like verses 11 and 12 talk about, you begin to try to reconcile. You begin to make peace. That doesn't mean sweep stuff under the rug. That's not what I'm saying. But reconcile. Because we worship a God of reconciliation. He reconciled you to himself by sending his son. So the fight, the real fight, is not with the other person or your situation The real fight is a fight for faith in the gospel. That's the fight. To believe and to trust all that God is for you in and through his son, Jesus. So the fight is real, folks. Your heart, the enemy, the world, it's real. But as you embrace the gospel, as you live out the gospel, the rewards are great. The good news is great for yourself your joy, your relationships, your church, but let's make it missional, your city. Your city, my city, needs to see a people who love each other in the midst of conflict and know how to deal with it. And the gospel's the only answer. All right, so let's pray. We're out of time. So Lord, what do we, once again, what do we say to these things? If you were for us, who's against us? So God, would you help us in all the ways we talked about today? In Jesus' name, amen.